Genesis chapter 13. Hear God's word. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he made an altar at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that he could not support both of them, so the land could not support both of them dwelling together. But the possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot was settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. This is the word of our Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray again together. Our Lord and our God, as we approach this passage of Scripture, Lord, we see events that took place thousands of years ago. Yet in these events, we also get a glimpse into the hearts of man today. Lord, we get a glimpse even into our own hearts. For we see that the choice that lies before all of us, choices to serve ourselves first or to serve others. And Lord, by serving others, to serve you. Lord, I pray that, that as we approach this passage, that, that you would help us, Lord, to, to see with the eyes of faith. And Lord, to see who you are and to see the great gifts that you have given us. And Lord, not to choose the things of this world, the, the, the baubles and the riches of this world that, that so easily distract us and divert us from your course. Lord, I pray that, that you would cause us to be faithful. Lord, I pray that, that you would help us to, to glorify you in every choice of life. We ask this in the majestic name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior. Amen. When I was a boy, um, I, had, I had one brother. And sometimes if there was, if there was a, some, some cake left in the fridge, my, my parents would, would say, okay, well, you guys can split the cake. Maybe, maybe you can relate to this. And, and, but my brother and I, would, we would want to make sure that, that the other didn't get the bigger half of the cake. So my, my mom and her wisdom would say, okay, well, well, one of you can cut it, and then the other can choose. 
So I would get out a slide rule and, and measure and a scale and measure, make sure that these two pieces of cake were exactly the same. Can you relate to that? What I was looking for in that, in that was, was certainly not, not my brother's best. I was looking for my best. I was looking for what I wanted. And, and we all face the option of, of whether we're going to, to prefer others above ourselves whether we're going to take the, the biggest piece of cake or, or rush to the bathroom when you both need to go or, or leave one square left on the toilet paper roll or, or pretend that you don't smell that dirty diaper so that your, your spouse has to change it. I guess there's a theme coming out here. Or, or, but to, to choose the, the action movie instead of the chick flick. You choose an, an extra dessert in the food line of our fellowship meal rather than leaving some to others. Now, those are all pretty frivolous situations, but they really point to a heart issue, don't they? When we choose for, for ourselves above that of others, well, we're, we're really revealing that we love ourselves more than others. And, and someone who regularly makes choices selfishly in the small things is also more likely to make selfish choices in the big things. So what do you do when the opportunity arises for you to serve someone else or serve yourself? And even when you make a commitment to do the right thing and to prefer the other, you know how easily you can again default to self-serving. Now we all know what God commands us to do, right? Matthew 23, 39, love your neighbor as yourself. Or Matthew 7, 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So, so this is the, the, the great commandment and, and the, the golden rule both say that we should love others as we love ourselves, to, to prefer others even above ourselves. But we know that we don't do it, Right? None of us do it, at least not perfectly. But when we begin to see things from God's perspective, we begin to understand that it is no real risk to put God and others first. As we'll see, those who are selfishly motivated won't see clearly, will risk losing it all. In the passage this morning, Abram is presented with the opportunity to prefer himself over his nephew Lot. Remember from chapter 12, Abram made the wrong choice, a, a horribly wrong choice. He preferred himself over his wife. He didn't just choose the wrong piece of cake, the big piece of cake. He sacrificed his, his wife's purity and God's promise in an attempt to save his own neck. He told Sarai to deceive Pharaoh, to, to tell him that, he was her that, that Abram was her brother out of fear that, that Pharaoh would harm him. And so Pharaoh took Sarai into his harem and would have remained there a possession of a pagan king unless the Lord had intervened. The Lord, the Lord Abraham was also putting his, the, the, the heritage at risk. He was putting, putting his offspring at risk because, because with, with Sarai in a, in a pagan harem, she would never be able to become the, the mother of his children. So again, Abram would have, been, would have been forsaken were it not for the Lord's intervention. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his household with, with great plagues, forcing him to release Sarai back to Abram. Even in Abram's sin, God was being faithful to him. 
God delivered Abram and his wife and gave him great wealth, flocks and herds and, and servants. Yet this wealth, as wealth so often is, comes with a hook. It becomes the occasion for another temptation. Providing food for his vast flocks and those of his nephew Lot creates conflict between the herdsmen. The conflict between the, the people of promise and the, the people of rejection is being played out here in the promised land. The land of the Jordan Valley looks more fertile than the promised land. The, the need for food has already drawn Abram out of the promised land into Egypt. So what's he going to do? Is he, is he going to leave again? Is he going to honor God? Is he going to prefer himself or his nephew Lot? Will he walk by faith or will he walk by sight? The story has three main acts. In verses 1 to 7, we see conflict over pasture in the promised land. And then in verses 8 to 13, Abram defers to Lot, who chooses Sodom over the promised land. And then in verses 14 to 18, the Lord reaffirms his gift of the promised land. So first of all, verses 1 to 7, conflict over pasture in the promised land. So the story begins, we see Abram retracing his steps back from Egypt, back into the promised land. He makes his way north with his wife, with his possessions, with his nephew, Lot. He travels back from the Negev up to between Bethel and Ai, where he had first entered into the promised land. Now, this, this detail here about, about his travels is not just a geographical detail. This is a spiritual detail signifying Abram's renewed commitment to faith in God's promises. Hear the words in, in verses 3 and 4. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where, he'd set his, where, he, where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he'd made an altar where he'd been at altar at the first, and there Abram called on the name of the Lord. So he went back to where he'd previously built an altar, back to where he had called on the name of the Lord, back to where, to where he had worshipped the Lord. So this trip that Abram is going on, back from Egypt into the Promised Land, is a pilgrimage. Abram is going back to the place that the Lord had called him to. Now, Abram should never have left in the first place. He here is, is repentant of his, his faltering faith in Egypt, and now he's back where he belongs. And so at the, here and at the end of the chapter, we're going to see Abram building another altar. Abram's faith is clearly on display in Genesis 13. We see Abram walking out repentance. Repentance means, means backtracking. It means going back to the place where you first left the path. You can't go partway back. You need to go all of the way back. Maybe some of you here this morning have, have strayed from the path. Maybe, maybe you need to be refreshed and to be restored like, like Abram did. Maybe you've grown dull in your spiritual walk. Maybe you've fallen into a pattern of sin. Maybe you've grown weary and the cares of, of this life have distracted you or, or the pleasures of this life have diverted you from God's course. Maybe you've been too busy. Maybe you just need to get back where you belong in fellowship and obedience to the Lord. And so here in, in Genesis 13, Abram is back where he belongs. But there's a complication. He has gained great wealth during his time in Egypt. 
Not only did he receive much livestock from Pharaoh, but also silver and gold. Matthew Henry comments that, that Abram was very heavy, so the Hebrew word signifies, for riches are a burden. And those will be rich do but load themselves with thick clay. There's a burden of care in getting them, fear in keeping them, temptation in using them, guilt in abusing them, sorrow in losing them, and a burden of account at last to be given up concerning them. Great possessions do make men heavy and unwieldy. And we need to understand that, that wealth in itself is neither good nor bad. It's, it's your, your perspective on wealth and, and how you use wealth that matters. It's your, your attitude towards wealth that matters. But those who, who own wealth need to be very careful that their wealth does not own them. They say that, that wealth builds wealth, but wealth also consumes wealth. I was, I was at the gas station yesterday, and, and there was a guy there filling up a Lamborghini. And, and luxury cars ha have a habit of guzzling premium gas. Spacious homes need to be heated. Flocks and herds need to be watered and fed. And that's where the problems for Abram begin here. We didn't hear anything about Lot in Egypt, but he was surely with him. Lot is, is going to figure prominently here in chapter 13. This is, the, this is, is also the first of, of three Abram-Lot stories in the book of Genesis. The next is, is Abram's rescue of Lot in chapter 14. And then the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in chapters 18 and 19. And in these stories, Lot serves as a foil for Abram, as a, as a contrast to Abram's faithfulness. And so here we see a further distinction between, between the, the line of promise and the line of rejection. And we can see from this text that, that Lot is, is very wealthy too. He also had flocks and herds. So many that the, the land couldn't support the, the, the animals of, of both men. And so it produced strife between their herdsmen. And to complicate matters, they, they weren't the only ones in the land. They, they were surrounded by, by Canaanites and, and Perizzites, the, the two tribal groups that, that already lived there. They had, they had flocks of their own. And it would be a long time before Israel would be strong enough to, to oust the Canaanites and the Perizzites from the land. And until that time, Abram and Lot would be vulnerable, more vulnerable if there was strife between them in this land. Now, this conflict anticipates sibling rivalry that's going to figure prominently later on in Genesis. We're going to see that with, with Isaac versus Ishmael, or Jacob versus Esau. And it's also going to anticipate a later conflict between the descendants of Abram and the descendants of Lot, between the Israelites and the, the Moabites and the Ammonites. So the, this theme of, of conflict, as we've seen re repeatedly in Genesis, this conflict between the, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is going to continue all the way until the end of all things, when the Lord returns. There's conflict in the promised land. So who's going to give? This serves as a test for Abram. He, he has recommitted himself to follow the Lord, and now he's being tested. This is often how it happens, isn't it? We make a commitment to follow the Lord and then, then on the heels of it, we're tested with, with some, some major decision that is gonna, gonna, gonna we're gonna decide, are we gonna, are we gonna honor God with this or are we gonna go our own way? You commit yourself and then the temptation comes in that very area. 
Now, when that happens, you need to realize that it does not mean that the Lord is abandoning you. Quite the opposite. When, when that temptation comes, God is testing your mettle. He's testing your mettle. He's, he's not doing it because he needs to know, but so that you will know. So, so that you will re- reinforce and reaffirm your commitment in him and be strengthened through that trial to follow him, to be obedient to him. He wants to drive you deeper. He wants to drive you deeper in him. He wants, he wants to help you to grow. And so when you face conflict, whether it's at home or at school or in the workplace or at church, how are you going to respond to it? Are you going to respond selfishly in self-protection? Or are you going to respond graciously and lovingly and obedient to the Lord? Are you going to choose selfishly or are you going to prefer others? And quite often when there's conflict, in fact, pretty much every time there's conflict, it's because there is your will versus the will of the other person that's in conflict. You want something and they want something. And so you fight. So let's see what happens here with Abram and Lot. In verses 8 to 13, Abram defers to Lot, who chooses Sodom over the promised land. Now, with no apparent resolution to the conflict, Abram here takes the initiative. He defers to Lot, verses 8 and 9. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. That's really a a generous proposition, isn't it? Well, first of all, Abram is is Lot's uncle. And so so he had the the, the place of position above Lot. The the land, even even just from from custom, the the land was, was his. He had the right to choose. But far more than that, the land was promised to Abram, not to Lot, by the Lord. Abram had, had, a right to, he had a right to the land. But deference is the solution of faith. A- avoidance of strife is more important to Abram than getting his way. He's focused on what really mattered. Here they are in this alien land, and, and he points out that, that we're kinsmen. We're brothers. This is what really matters. And so I will defer to you. Kids, when you're fighting with your siblings over a toy, what matters more to you in that moment? That, that toy, it's, it's going to get broken one day and it's going to end up in the garbage. You, you probably won't care about it in, in a couple months' time. What's more important to you, that toy or your siblings, your brothers and sisters? When we make choices to serve ourselves, we're saying that we and what we want are more, is more important than those around us. Couples, what, is, what, what matters more than, than getting your way in an argument? Church members, what matters more than winning a debate? Galatians 5.14 says it like this, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You should love your neighbor as yourself. That is more important than whatever bobble you guys are arguing about. If you aren't willing to walk by faith, you'll never see it. 
You won't see past getting your own way or not allowing yourself to be used or fooled. In the Corinthian church, people were even suing each other over perceived wrongs. What was Paul's response? Well, in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, he says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? God is the judge. God is able to make it right. Again, if you're not walking by faith, you will never see it. But there's something else that's going on in this story as well. Abram and Lot are about to part ways. Remember that Abram took Lot in all the way back when they were still in Ur of the Chaldeans. After, after Haran, Lot's father, Abram's brother, died. And Lot had, had been with him ever since. But now after all these years, they're separating. This is the final step in the Lord's call to Abram to leave his kindred. It's a continuation of the process of covenant separation. Abram is separating from his family and separating to the Lord. Now some cults use passages like this to divide families. We need to remember that this is a narrative. The description of the events that are here are not directly applicable to you unless they are found elsewhere in Scripture in principle or in direct command. Yes, we know that Jesus taught that if anyone comes to me and does not hate his, his own father and mother and his wife and his children, his brother and his sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my, be my disciple, Luke 24, 26. But he's teaching there that your love for others, even your love for, for yourself, must pale in comparison to your love for him. You're commanded to honor your father and your mother, uh, Exodus 20.12 and Ephesians 6.2, and to care for them, 1 Timothy 5.8. So, so Abram here, being called to, to leave his family, was not a, a general command, but was specific to him in his particular circumstances. But nonetheless, it does point to a principle of division between God's covenant people and those outside the covenant. We know that, that when it comes to, to those that we know, friends and, and neighbors and co-workers and even family members, if, if, they, are not, if, they, if they are not Christians, if they're not born again, we, we know that they're, even though we love them, even we desire, though we desire to, to, to care for them, there's still, there's, there's still a friction there, isn't there? Because you can't, you're not holding the most important things in common. So what happens here? With, with Lot now. Well, let's think first about what Lot should have done. His uncle had generously given him, him the choice. He should have given the choice back to Abram. He should have said something like, no, uncle, you've taken me into your family. You've cared for me for all these years. Please, you choose. But he doesn't. Verse 10, Lot, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now there's some major red flags here. The first thing is, notice the words that they're used at the beginning, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw. Does that remind you of anything? Think back to Eve in the garden who looked up, who lifted up her eyes and saw the fruit of the knowledge of the, the, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was just before the fall. Or in Genesis 6, how the, 
the sons of uh, the sons of God, these 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 wicked men, saw the, the daughters of man. They lifted up their eyes and saw the the, the daughters that the daughters of men were beautiful, and so they took them for themselves. That's just before the flood. So we're seeing here, we're giving a warning that something disastrous is about to happen to Lot. When Lot lifts up his eyes, he's following in, in some pretty wicked footsteps. It's not going to end well for him. Well, what does he lift up his eyes to see? The Jordan Valley. The Jordan Valley. This is outside of the promised land. Another red flag. He's, he's seeking to leave the promised land for greener pastures. The, the grass in his mind is greener on the other side of the fence. He saw that it was well watered, but, but not by well water. There was, this was, there was surface water all around. And note the comparisons here to the Garden of the Lord. In other words, the, the Garden of Eden. Also like Egypt in the direction of Zoar and the, the Nile Delta, which is very fertile compared to the rest of Egypt. Then look at the ominous words at the end of verse 10. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Friends, Lot saw what Lot wanted to see. In his assessment, the land was good. He lifted up his eyes and his heart and his body followed. Verse 11, So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. He left Abram and he left the promised land. Abram settled in Canaan and Lot settled among the, the cities of the valley. He moved his tent as far as as Sodom. I wonder, are you tempted by the cities of the valley? What does the world offer you that looks good on the outside? Is it something that, that feeds your lust so that you'll heap up possessions or a worldly pleasure or the, the praise of men? Do you choose by sight, not faith? the glamorous girl over the godly one, the popular friends over the pious ones, the luxurious home over the loving one, the flashy church over the faithful one. Choose to walk by faith, not sight. Make your decisions, the, the big and the small decisions of life, who you're going to marry, what job you're going to pursue, where you're going to live, where you're going to go to church based on faith, not sight. If you've made a mistake in this area, have the wisdom and the humility to pull a U-turn, repent, retrace your steps, backtrack, go back to the place where you left the path. Things are not always as they appear. Sometimes the cupcake is full of worms. The Lord had a very different assessment of Sodom. Verse 13, but the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Now, of course, all sin is wicked and all sin is against the Lord, ultimately. But what, 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 what Moses is doing here is he's heaping up adjectives to show just how wicked these men were. They weren't just sinners, but wicked sinners. They weren't just wicked sinners, but they're wicked sinners against the Lord. The same words are, are described to use the, the wickedness in the hearts of men prior to the flood. As fertile as the Jordan Valley was, it was more fertile for the spread of evil. Though Lot may not have known it, it doesn't seem to have cared to find out. 
destruction was coming for Sodom and Gomorrah. Using the words of Jonathan Edwards in Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, the black clouds of God's wrath were hanging directly over their heads. When His wrath comes, it will come with fury. And the destruction would come like a whirlwind. And they would be like the chaff on the summer threshing floor. A whirlwind or a, a tornado, tornado is the most powerful localized weather event on the planet. You've probably seen footage of the destruction in Ottawa uh, from Thursday's tornadoes. One of them came extremely close to my brother's house. My, my parents are there visiting right now. Homes were completely destroyed. Large trees were, were snapped in half or uprooted and placed on top of, of neighboring houses. Cars were lifted up and dropped. Multiple uh, electricity transformers were obliterated. Almost 200,000 people are without power and will be for days. It's very localized destruction. But it's nothing compared to the destruction that was in store for Sodom and Gomorrah. Whatever it looked like when Lot saw it, it's nothing like that now. This is where the, the Dead Sea is. I had the opportunity to visit there when I was in seminary 10 years ago. This is, this is one of the most barren regions on earth. There is nothing but sand. And the Dead Sea is so salty that nothing can live in it. So Lot would, would lose a lot in the destruction. By the time we get to Genesis 19, Lot is no longer living in a tent, but he is now dwelling in a house in the middle of Sodom. Things look pretty bleak and grim for Lot. But don't be too hasty to, to, judge, to judge him. Don't write him off so quickly. Things are not completely as they seem with Lot either. Peter tells us the Lord's assessment of Lot. And when Peter uses him as, as an example of the Lord's ability to rescue the godly from trials, he calls, Peter calls Lot a righteous man. We're going to talk more about this when we get to Genesis chapter 19. So, so Lot comes out of this trial, but, but as though through fire. In fact, literally through fire. He's going to lose pretty much everything in the process. Friends, we live in Sodom and Gomorrah. We're surrounded by wicked sinners against the Lord. Our, our culture has normalized things that are an abomination to the Lord. And I'm not just talking about extreme sexual sin. I wonder, what's your response to, to the sin that you see around you? Do, you? do you acquiesce to it? I don't even mean do you, do you engage in it, but do you accept it? Do you accept what the world is saying about sin? Or do you continually look back to God's word and see what God says? What's God's assessment of the situation? Well, finally, in verses 14 to 18, we see that the Lord reaffirms his gift of the promised land. With Lot now gone, the Lord deals again with Abram. He repeats his covenant promise to Abram. He says to him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, to the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. 
This is a promise of land and a seed. Land and a seed. This is language that's very similar to what we saw in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, but with added detail. Where Lot had lifted up his eyes to, to look at the Jordan Valley, now the Lord instructs Abram to lift up his eyes and to look at the land that he is giving him. It's all around him, north and south and east and west. Again, Abram is promised an offspring, an offspring that is, we're now told is like the dust of the earth. That the Lord is going to make Abram's offspring many, but there's still no mention yet of how this is going to be worked out. Lot follows his eyes. Now the Lord tells Abram to follow his eyes. He tells him to arise and to walk the length and the breadth of the land. The promise that was given to Joshua, Joshua in Joshua 1.3 echoes this. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. First promised to Abram, and then to Moses, and then to Joshua. Now think about the Lord's dealing here again with Abram. Think about, about where he's come from. He's just come from a, a tragedy at his own, of his own making in, in Egypt. He has sacrificed his wife's purity in Egypt. And now he's, he's repented. He's, he's come back. He's, he's now again worshiping the Lord. I think there's a, a lesson for us here as well. Are you feeling discouraged? Beaten down by the sin of others or, or beaten down by your own sin? Look to God's word and see what God has promised you. He has not promised you a land. He has not promised you an offspring, but he has promised to conform you to the image of his son, even by those very trials that you are experiencing. He has promised that he would give you eternal life in, in fellowship with his son. So look to God's word. Renew your faith in God's promises. God is speaking to you from his word. And Abram responds in faith and obedience. The, the quick fire description, verse 18, Abram pitched his tent, entered and settled, conveys Abram's immediate compliance and assurance that the promises will be fulfilled. Yet Abram didn't see the fulfillment of these promises in his lifetime. It would be over 400 years before Israel would take possession of the promised land. Abram knew that this land that he was dwelling on wasn't ultimately his home. For he looked forward to the city that has foundations, whose design and builder is God. Hebrews 11.10 Abram was making these choices that he made because he understood who God was. Because he understood that God was faithful to his promises. Because God had been faithful to his promises even in the midst of his sin. So Abram turns in faith to the faithful God. Abram moved his tent to the Oaks of Mamre, to Hebron. It's about 30 kilometers south of Jerusalem. This became the center of, of Abram's movements and very close to the land where he, he would purchase the cave to bury his wife and where he himself would be buried, the cave of Machpelah. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Notice that. There he built an altar to the Lord. This chapter begins and ends with worship. Friends, the deeds of faith come from worship and 
feed worship. Let me say that again. The deeds of faith, they come from worship and they feed worship. This chapter shows how Abram has come back from rebellion, come back from faithlessness, come back from disobedience, and he's come back to the Lord. So this conflict over the land really became an opportunity. It became an opportunity for divine blessing because by God's grace, he saw it with the eyes of faith. I wonder, is there conflict in your life, in your family, at church, with friends, with neighbors, with coworkers? As I mentioned earlier, this conflict comes because you have a will and the other party has a will. But neither one of you is looking to understand what is God's will. What is God's will? It's only when you stop trying to exert your will and look for God's will that you will see clearly. Only then will you see, see the opportunity that this conflict presents for an is an opportunity for God's blessing. It's an opportunity for God's blessing. I've, I've sat down with couples in, in marriage counseling and, and there's, a, there's a conflict that they're telling me about, sometimes over some very big issues. And I say, this is great. And they look at me like I've got two heads. But say, no, 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 this is, this is actually really good because it gives something for us to hold on to. Because, because when you have these, these, these willful responses in conflict, what it's really showing you is it's showing you idols in your heart. It's showing you things where you are seeking to serve yourself instead of the other person. So when you repent of trying to seek your will and instead seek God's will, God redeems that conflict and becomes an opportunity for you to, to be blessed in whatever relationship that is that you're experiencing. And I've seen the fruit of this. I've seen, seen marriages that have been, been radically restored because of God's work in hearts as they repented of following their own will. It is no real risk to put God and others First, but if you choose selfishly, you will not see clearly and risk losing it all. Again, you know the commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. But you can't even begin to love others until you love God. And you don't know what love means unless you love God. But the reality is that, that none of us love God as we should, so none of us love each other as we should. So what do we do with that? We do the same thing that Abram did. We look to God with the eyes of faith. We go to the gospel. Abram couldn't make the choices that he made, here these right choices, apart from God's grace. Now, you might be here this morning as an unbeliever who's never trusted in Christ, never trusted in God's grace, but you're going to continually hit a wall when you try to, to obey because you can't do it. You do not have the resources to be able to do it. You need to repent and be born again, turn away from your, serving yourself and your sin, and instead seek to serve God and others. And only when you're born again, only when the Holy Spirit is, is operating within your heart and is, is conforming you to to the image of Christ will you begin to, to even see this, let alone do it. But we'll still fall short, won't we? We'll, we'll never love God as we should. We'll, we'll never love others as we should. And so we still look to Christ. 
Think about he, uh, Philippians 2, 3-11. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he's in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above all names, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Like Abram, look to Jesus with the eyes of faith and by his grace follow in his footsteps. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we consider your selflessness in sending your Son to die for our sins, Lord Jesus, though you were God incarnate, you humbled yourself even to the point of death on a cross out of love for your heavenly Father and out of love for your bride, the church. Lord, we confess that we so often fail to love you. We confess that we so often fail to love others that we instead seek to serve ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us, that you would make us a people who by your grace and for your glory have our hearts and minds and our eyes set on serving you and serving others. Lord, that we'd be a reflection of Christ. Lord, we can't do this unless you do it in our hearts through your Holy Spirit. Make us willing. Help us to obey. Help us, Lord, to follow Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.